Welcome to Life Unsalted, inspiring you with expert advice and innovative ideas. From health and career to finance and leadership, listen in on leaders and influencers in the community doing something awesome. Live your most extraordinary life because life is too sweet to be salty. But if I go this and that and no, like, save the planet and, you know, do this yeah. and it's whatever's trending for the moment. So how do we as passionate people light the fire for that next level of leadership? Yeah, I think to me, it's all about opportunity, right? Like our, our job is to sort of cultivate the opportunities and lay them out. So here's opportunities for you to pursue something, to dive into it, to burrow through it. Um, and hopefully they take it and then during that, to figure out what it is they really, really yeah. care about. So it's almost like setting the stage as much as you can and then even making it safe for them to jump in there. Um, but then there is a point where they have to figure out what their passion is. Uh, but I was just talking to my chief of staff who works with this leadership organization called NHI. Uh, it's National Hispanic Institute. And it's, it's about taking high school kids and turning them into the next leaders. Right. Um, and to some degree, you can imagine two-thirds of those kids are the kids who are destined to be congresspeople and senators and CEOs anyway. But there's always a small pocket of folks, of kids, who maybe are there reluctantly. They're there because their parents made them go, or they're there because it's a requirement for school. And sure enough, during the course of the time, they butt heads, and they have confrontations, and they make people threaten to leave and quit. But what she does is she keeps pushing them um, to get to a point where her method is she realizes she almost does like a psychoanalysis of each kid and figures out what they believe they can't do and then uses the time with them to push them in a direction where by the end they've done exactly what they thought they couldn't do. And then she makes it a point to point it out. It doesn't work all the time, but it works enough times for them to feel different and renewed because they literally did something they thought they couldn't do with this public speaking or research or writing or working on a team or going toe to toe with people that they might feel aren't their peers that outclass them in some way. Um, I think that's valuable. So when I have interns sometimes when I was a lawyer, I was lawyering all the time. I get kids from St. Mary's and kids from Harvard and Yale and always made sure to give them the same work because nine times out of 10 the St. Mary's kids work harder than these kids. These kids are naturally smart and they're gifted, but these kids had a chip on the shoulder. They wanted to prove to everybody they were just as good. And by the end, I would, you're running circles around the Ivy League kids. Right. So I think part of our job is to lay out those opportunities, um, but also to know those folks in a way. And I mean, I'm not saying I did your job. I'm saying just in, in I'll in, take it. <laughs> yeah. In my experience, part of it, part of it is, is to recognize what they think their capabilities and limitations are, lay it out so they can discover their passion. And if anything else, say, you know, you said you couldn't, whatever, or you were afraid to, and you're just for the record, you're doing it right now. So I don't want to hear this. You know. <laughs> Look at you now. Yeah. I mean, even I had a, a meeting with a bunch of parents about some problem at their school and they brought, uh, one of them brought their kid who was a student there. And she said, I'm just, I don't want to say anything. I'm just going to say, listen, fine. But by the end, she had chimed in three or four times. I said, Remember when you came in, you said you weren't going to say anything? Mm. Now look. And so I think that, I don't know, just like our job is either to be better than the folks that we're leading or to recognize that, that 
it's our goal is not to be better, but to tease out what's really good in them. Right. Because they're probably better than us. Right. Right. I'm not sure. <laughs> also, I have a very broad definition of leader. That's for sure. Yeah. Super broad. Yeah. Why? Or what would you consider makes it broad? Because I think it means different things to different people. Mm. You know, so people see me as a leader because I'm elected, but they don't realize that they're my boss. Because we hire you. Right. And fire me. And so I'm constantly going to other people who I think know more than I do because they go, oh, yeah, well, I'm, I, yeah, I am elected, but that should make you feel more entitled and empowered around me as opposed to giving me deference because you put me here. You know, like in what situation are our bosses that ginger around their employees? And so, you know, they see me as a leader, but I sort of see them as where I get direction from. Yeah, I think I think you touched on one real good point about leadership is questioning, like asking the questions and then listening. Yeah. So I think as leaders, sometimes we can get confused with just trying to run the race and, you know, being the first one across the finish line. But yeah. if you're not listening. Yeah. People don't elect you because they think you're smarter than them. They, they elect you because they, they feel like they can hear your, themselves in mm-hmm. the things you say, the things that you represent, but no one wants to be led, mm-hmm. right? They want, they want to be sort of, they want to sort of walk with you in a certain direction. Um, but you know, these people are sheep. Mm-hmm. But those Good. Awesome. Well, uh, you have been hearing us on Life Unsalted with Representative Diego Bernal. I'm Luisa Garcia, and we have Charmaine Garza here, our host. Um, We want to welcome everyone to Life Unsalted, and we are focusing today on leadership. Um, Diego, thank you so much for joining us. We just want to dive into your current role. Um, If you can just tell everybody your current role as representative. Sure. I'm the state representative for Texas House District 123, which is the center city of San Antonio. So if you're from San Antonio, think the colonnade all the way south through the center city and downtown to Highway 90. If you're not from San Antonio, it's downtown, a little bit north, a little bit south. Awesome. So I was pretty intrigued by some of your early experience in Detroit. Can you talk about that and maybe how it shaped you in the beginning? Yeah. So, um, you know, I came from San Antonio to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, Ann Arbor is sort of like the Midwest version of Austin. And so it wasn't like San Antonio at all. Um, but a lot of the guys I went to school, to school with, a lot of the guys I connected with at school were from Detroit, in particular, Southwest Detroit. Um, which is sort of like the Mexican-American, African-American, Albanian part of Detroit. And so in spending time there um, while I was in grad school and after grad school, I spent time at an organization um, working with guys who are getting out of prison, uh, trying to get them ready to go back into the workforce, and then working with students who were or kids who were in gangs and trying to negotiate with the gangs to let them out so they could go back to school. Um, and that... And that way, it sort of balanced out my very sort of privileged, you know, suit and tie uh, experience at, in Ann Arbor at school, which, you know, was very sterilized and um, very academic and very sheltered and privileged. And also sort of felt like I was doing what I could for the folks that I had still had back in San Antonio. This sort of felt like being able to have my, my feet in both places. 
That's interesting. So can you tell us um, the big relationship between civil rights and music? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, well, generally, without talking about me, I think generally every civil rights moment and movement has a soundtrack. I and mean, if you think about the history of this country, yeah. um, actually history all over the place, there's always music that corresponds with, with those movements. And so that's like the easy answer to your question. But, but for me, um, when I was at the Mexican American legal defense as a staff attorney, I was, I had been a DJ since I was a teenager in high school. And then while I, while I was there, I started to get tired of playing other people's music. I wanted to make my own. So I started to put out records when, um, I was a Maldive attorney. And so there was a brief moment in town where I was the civil rights attorney slash DJ producer music That's guy, awesome. which is a very fun sort of like superhero identity so, for me. So would you take your daily stuff and download it into a song or how did you come about creating? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I guess I, I, it would happen after work. I think for most artists in the city are working artists means they have other jobs. There's mm-hmm. very, very few people who can afford to um, make a living off their art in this town. It's something the city has to get better at, but I call it the magic hours. So it's like 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. That's when everybody gets all the all their work done. So you know, it'd be me and a turntable and a sampler and a laptop, and you're just sort of fiddling around until something sounds right. Nice. Yeah, and it was. I mean, you know, it was fun. Yeah, it was good. That is awesome. Um, so when you came back to San Antonio, your heart, I know, is San Antonio. Mm-hmm. What um, does that mean to you and your people, and litigating for them? You know, I think um, it's a good question. One of the, I think the most important lesson I learned when I went away to Michigan um, was the fact that I realized that I was in class with people who at the beginning I thought would be the best and the brightest. This is the best that the world has to offer. These are University of Michigan students, you know, long history university, national and international reputation. You know, there's a, there's a phrase, there's only two flags on the moon. One is the United States and one is the Michigan flag, which is true, by the way. <laughs> but I realized after my second or third week that these folks weren't any smarter or more diligent or more curious um, and certainly more deserving than the folks that I went to high school with at Jefferson or Brack or middle school with at DeFoya. And so I felt very obligated, I think, to take that opportunity, that privilege and, and do something to make my experience more common you know, I think there's two ways. There's two ways to go about it. If you go to Harvard or Princeton or Berkeley or Michigan or UTU, whatever it might be, you can feel special, but then you should sort of feel bothered by the fact that you're. It's so rare. Right. And instead of coming home and being a unicorn, you should come home and want to become a you know a blade of grass. You want it to be as common as possible. Mm-hmm. And so I felt very motivated by that. And so civil rights litigation gave me a chance to try to do that. That is so awesome. Sounds like you have a lot of traveling experiences, diversity bit. experiences. A little bit. Not a lot. A so what bit. would you say would be an influential story that really drove your passion for leadership? For leadership? Well, um, I, I, to some degree, I think leadership is a privilege, right? Like some people are in positions to do it. And so if you have it, then you should do it. Um you know, comparing myself to like my dad, who was a farm worker, I mean, he didn't have the same options that I do. So when you have those options, there is, I think, to some degree, uh, an obligation you have 
to do something that helps other people and gives back. I mean, that's just personally. I don't judge other people that way. That's that's my own sort of philosophy, right? right? Um, but I also think that there's no such. My dad used to say this to me. And it's kind of funny that you ask. He used to say he liked riddles. And what does every leader need? And I would go through all the characteristics <laughs> as a profile, no you know, MLK, <laughs> Malcolm X, and yeah. he said they need followers. Mm-hmm. And what he meant was there's no such thing as a standalone leader. And so what you're really doing is you're working on behalf of and with other people. And that's what we were talking about earlier about the having a very broad definition. That's sort of what I mean is that it doesn't have to be the, the title as much as it is the, the way that you interact with folks and the things that you can do with them or get them to do. Um, and so that's, to me, it's about, you know, a common goal and trying to bring out the best in other folks and hopefully them doing the same for you. So how do you come about to find out what you're passionate about? I mean, there's a lot of issues. Um, what drives you? And yeah, that's, I don't, I don't know the answer. I mean, I think part of it is just the way that we're, we're wired. Sometimes, you know, so I, look, I, I've got all these interns in my, in my office. It's a political office. They care about everything, right? They care about healthcare. They care about immigration. They care about, education and the list goes on. And at a certain point I told them, you're, you're probably going to have to choose. So part of the question is, what do you care a lot about? And the other is, where do you think you're going to be the most effective? Which is, I know not a very sexy answer, <laughs> but I think, I think it's an important answer. I mean, it's, a, it's important exercise to go with it. Where do you think you can do the most good um, and try that? I don't think that anyone has to pick one thing. They should explore different things and they'll find the place where they best fit. Um, you know, you may want to be on TV and just and realize you've got a face for radio, right? I mean, so, uh, <laughs> uh, and then that's what, that's where you, and that's where you fit and that's where you can do the best work. I think it's an important question to ask. Awesome. Well, let's just hold that thought for a second. We're going to hear from our sponsors and take a quick break. Did you know 33 million people qualify for student loan forgiveness, but only a handful are aware it exists? My Education Solutions, located in San Antonio, Texas, is the leading national expert in student loan forgiveness. As a consumer advocacy organization, we provide financial wellness education, resources, and a free calculator that shows you how much forgiveness you are legally entitled to up front. It's our job to help people make more informed decisions to reduce their student loan debt in the fastest and least expensive way possible. We have saved our clients more than $150 million and cut their repayment periods in half. Visit our website at MyEDUSolutions.com or give us a call at 800-618-1170. My Education Solutions, your student loan forgiveness experts. Welcome back, everyone. We are having an awesome time with Representative Diego Bernal. I'm Luisa Garcia, and I have Charmaine Garza. And we just want to dive back into, I think, something that's huge, hugely passionate with all of us is, um, you know, how you fought against discrimination in the workplace mm-hmm. and in schools. Yeah. I mean, I, that's work that I did as an attorney, and it's work I do now as a legislator. First, you have to acknowledge that those things exist. Right. Right. And then you have to find as many different ways as you can uh, to fix it, which kind of goes back to figure out where you're most 
where you're most effective because we don't do it by yourself. So I'm, I'm in the legislature. I'm focusing on this. What I see is discrimination in one place, but I rely on people in the nonprofit world. I rely on the other civil rights attorneys. I rely on my colleagues mm-hmm. in at the city council level or the county commission level or in Congress. There's an ecosystem of people trying to do good work. And I think it's important to figure out where you fit. Um, I did, I did discrimination cases as a lawyer that I had to do um, with the opportunities that were provided to minority students primarily uh, and poor students. But even now as a legislator, I'm, I'm working on things that I still see as vestiges of discrimination. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we're in San Antonio. Right. There's 17 school districts in the city, which is ridiculous. Um, but in every district, especially the ones inside 410 and South, the ones that are sort of surrounded by or maybe even identified by generational poverty, lo and behold, the buildings are the worst. Yeah. They have the least experienced teachers. Mm-hmm. They have the least amount of technology. They ha- often have old textbooks. Um, I was at a middle, my old middle school recently um, and discovered that the science lab doesn't have running water. Wow. Right? And so um, those are things that we need to fix. What you can call it, if you don't like calling it discrimination, you can call it something else, but it looks the same to me. Uh, and so... I think it's a really important way um, to spend my time because, as you and I talked about before, all I want is to give those kids the same, the equity of opportunity. And then what they do with it is up to them, but they should at least be able to start from the same place. Because what you'll find is that there's talent everywhere if you just give it a shot to show itself. So um, So I hear you speaking about it, fighting the battle for others. mm -hmm. Have you ever experienced it? What did it feel like? And how did you combat that? Well, remember when I was talking about going to to Michigan and looking around and saying, hey, these, these kids are smarter right. than my friends. Well, I realized that there are, there are things that are outside of us that intervened that made our opportunities different that we weren't responsible for. So I saw myself in that. I saw myself as someone who is kind of lucky, not talented necessarily. So my first my first day at Michigan, I meet someone who lives in my in my hallway. And he's starting school as a sophomore because he, his whole senior year was, he took AP classes. Mm-hmm. At Jefferson, there was one AP class. Wow. That has nothing to do with me or my talent or my abilities or my drive or my desire. That's something completely out of my control that absolutely dictates what's going to happen to students like me. And other. That's when I say I was lucky. Right. So despite that, somehow I got there. But to all those other people at that school, how are they supposed to compete with that guy? And is that even fair? Of course it's not. So um, that's where I fit in. I, I kind of see myself and, and my family in, in, in those stories. Um, and that's where that obligation comes from. I know that right. drive and passion is important, but I, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say those obligations sprinkled in there somewhere. Yeah, definitely. I um, once saw a video where they've got everybody lined up and they start asking questions, you know, you know, just basing it on households. Like, did you grow up with a two-parent family, you know, take one step forward and you can see, you know, opportunity, yeah. like what you're talking about. Totally. Exactly. Life, life happens and, and, you know, changes. So it's, again, I think it all comes back to diversity of thought, you know, respecting mm-hmm. of opinions and inclusion in that. True. And so I think it like what you're saying, finding that common ground with someone building upon it. Yeah. I, that. I think that, I mean, one way I treat the job I have now, because there's so many issues and I can't possibly be an expert in all of them is I, I see myself as a journalist. I just go and keep asking questions so I develop a working understanding of what they're talking about so we can have a conversation about it. Um, But if you think I can explain children's Medicare um, 
and well, Medicaid without help, you know, <laughs> it's not, it's not going to happen. Not possible. Yeah. What are some, uh, what are some values that you just hold so strongly that, um, you feel have helped you currently? Oh, um, you know, it's an old cliche about remembering where you came from. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, it's very easy to start to treat positions like, like ours, like a lifestyle when it's really not, it's a, it's a job. Um, I think it's important not to be a coward. Um, the one pitfall that a lot of leaders fall into is they're always looking ahead to the next step, the next plateau. And I think that can make you timid in the present because you're worried that what you're going to do in the present is going to negatively affect your future. And when that happens, it means you're giving a fraction of yourself, mm-hmm. not all of it. And I guess um, leaders need to remind themselves that the stakes for them are different. Like what's the worst that could happen? Like for me, what's the worst that could happen? Got to risk it, right? Ah, I, lose, I lose an election. Okay. And then what? I get to go home and spend time with my kid. I mean, <laughs> you know, if, if, if losing, think of, if you think of this city and the problems that people have in this city, if losing an election is the biggest problem in my life, my life's awesome. <laughs> right. It's a great life. That's your biggest problem. You're, you're good. So I think leaders need to keep perspective and then instill that in the folks they work with. Um, cause you can't really go for it if you're holding yourself back a little bit. Right. Right. You mentioned a little bit about your family. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked a little on your relationship with your dad mm-hmm. and just opportunities that he was provided. Right. Um, what's your greatest takeaway? I think a lot of times, you know, people are forming us every day. Our parents, you know, sometimes I remember the younger me, um, a lot of times thought I knew it all, but when you right. come to this knowledge of being 40 year old, then you kind of realize what an influence your parents had on who you become. What's something you would say that definitely impact you were impacted by a family member, a parent, someone who's um, close to you. you know, I'm lucky. Like my, my, my parents were both activists. That's how they met. So I always <laughs> joke, what do you think was going to happen? I, you know, my mom, she's never said it this way, but for the most part, her message has been, you don't need to be the smartest. You can work really hard, but also be the most curious. Like whatever you don't know, you can make up with asking a lot of questions and figuring it out because the people who think they know it all don't ask. And that's a mistake. It's a mistake to not ask. So um, even though it drives me nuts sometimes, because every time I see her, she just peppers me with questions about everything. <laughs> everything. But um, I think asking, asking lots of questions all the time is I think more valuable than knowing whatever there is to know because you end up learning more. Awesome. We want to close out. What is your hope for, for young leaders today? Just not to be afraid um, to trust their gut, to go for it and uh, to not be shy about pursuing the things that mean a lot to them. I think that when someone's passionate, you often get, you almost always get their very best work. So figure out what it is you care a lot about. Or if you don't know, go and explore, figure out what that is, and then dive in. And I can almost guarantee one way or another it's going to work out. Awesome. Risk it all, right? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We have Representative Diego Bernal, Charmaine Garza, and myself, Luisa Garcia. And just remember, life is too sweet to be salty. <laughs> I like that. Thank you um, so much. You guys got you asked me all the open-ended questions, right? Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah.